0: Hi, everybody. This is David Rhodes, and welcome to another edition of In the Books, Fire Engineering's Books podcast. I'm joined today by Frank Ritchie, who just finished a phenomenal uh, piece of work, and it's called Command Presence. And don't let that title fool you, because it is not just about Having command presidents on an incident. This is a book that transcends the fire service. This could this could be on any business uh, reading list. Could be on any self improvement reading list. It's really about how to conduct yourself and how to have influence um, is is the biggest piece of that. So, Frank and I have uh, been friends for a very long time through fire engineering and FDIC. Frank's been a instructor at FDIC and an author for a long time, and even uh, during that time, we both uh, would cry on each other's shoulder a lot as uh, as our local union officials, and we would share notes, and Frank obviously is very well known for his court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court. So with that, Frank, how are you?
1: Dave, it's an honor to be on the show. And, uh, you know, it's great here in New England. It's fall time. So I got the fire going and uh, looking forward to this.
0: That's outstanding. So let's dive right in and uh, um, give us just a little bit of background for those who don't know you. Um, Just a quick fire service history and also a little history with that court case. Okay,
1: that's a tall order. So I started off as an explorer, like a lot of other firefighters. You know, I just love the fire service. Uh, We had a choice when we were kids. We could be firemen, firemen, or firemen. So we got to choose where we wanted to work, but both of my brothers are firefighters. Uh, My uncle was a New York City firefighter. So, you know, we started being an explorer, and I wanted to get hired, and I was dyslexic and had trouble reading. And I knew I needed something, Dave, to give me an edge in that hiring process. So Jack McElfish, which many people in the fire service know from Georgia. Um, yep. he came up from Montgomery County, Maryland and was chief of Wallingford, Connecticut. And he got my brother to live in a firehouse in Silver Spring before he started his career. So I was like, that's going to be the magic bullet. That's what's going to get me to the next level. So I enrolled in Montgomery College, which is, you know, known as Harvard on the Pike. Uh, Francis right. Brannigan taught there. So it's a community college and I lived in the firehouse and It was amazing, all the stuff I learned from good officers and bad officers, because, as you know, Dave, you go through your career, you get on one shift, then you get transferred, you go to another shift. What was really important about living in a firehouse was that you got to see all the different shifts at the same time with all the different characters, what worked, what didn't work, you know, how this officer excelled. You know, somebody just last week asked me, you know, how do you become the officer where you don't wash a dish? And I go, that's easy. You become the firefighter that never lets a wash officer wash their dish. You know, That's right. so I, I got to learn hands on in Montgomery County, in Rockville, volunteer fire department. And it was it was the best thing going. And, you know, from there, I got hired working for Bethesda Chevy Chase Rescue Squad inside the mm-hmm. Beltway on an ambulance, a medic unit and a heavy rescue. So I was living in the firehouse, running calls and going home and and living in the firehouse. So I'd go to work. Go back to the firehouse and run calls. And then um, I got hired in Middletown, Connecticut, uh, South District for eight months. And I got fired for union activity. Um, I filed an OSHA complaint uh, as a probationary firefighter. Don't recommend anybody to do that. Um, it was a good learning experience. Don't regret it. Um, not complaining. But uh, I put myself in a position of leadership on probation. Could have waited a little bit longer and still been more effective. And um, I was fired. My record was expunged. And uh, then I ended up in the city of New Haven, uh, which was the dream department, busy department, urban department in Connecticut, uh, has Yale, socioeconomically deprived. And I had a great career. You know, I I worked in uh, the Dixwell section of the city on the busiest truck in the city. And, you know, you mentioned the court case. I didn't get promoted for I think it was 12 or 13 years. And in hindsight, it was the best thing that happened to me. Because when I got promoted, I already made my mistakes acting. So, right. you know, I think acting is an important part of growing in a fire department. When you go to a fire, there's enough redundancy on the fire ground that you can build acting officers. I know some people are against acting. I think as long as it's done right, it's a vital part of growth in the fire service. And so I got promoted and something that was really strange. It goes back to the, that dish thing, Dave. When I got promoted to lieutenant, they kept me on my same shift. So I was actually supervising the individuals I worked for and worked with, and I had no issues. And then eventually I got sent like a fish out of water to I went from a black neighborhood and now I got put in an Ecuadorian neighborhood on the other side of the city, our busiest company in that battalion. But a totally different dynamic where English was a second language and you can go to You can go to the grocery store and get a guinea pig. And that was just part of dinner in that culture. It was uh, but it was a great learning experience on communication, um, you know, really making an impact in the neighborhood, worked with a great shift, but they were all crazy, which is It was a senior shift, but it was crazy shift. So, you know, we had our share of fires. And one of the funny things about writing the book is, is as I'm writing the book, I find myself writing about my mistakes. You know, like I didn't write about the fires where things went good. I was like, wow, I must have really sucked as an officer because here's this mistake and here's that mistake. And one of the things that I that I really wanted to focus on in the book is there's a lot of great books on the characteristics of being a leader, you know, tons of books. But the problem is, is if you're reading that book, I'm going to guess you probably already have some of those characteristics, you know, you're reading a leadership book or an influence book or an officer's book because you want to be a little bit better, right? We're not trying to be the guy that we or girl that we read the book from, but we're just all trying to be a little bit better. And I found a lot of those books were lacking in the, while those books are very important, but I found them lacking in the actual tactics and strategies that you can use to increase your influence. And so I started looking around and I said, you know, Dave, what makes somebody a good leader and it really came down to what i define as command presence is whether you're calm you know we all worked for somebody who knew what they were doing but weren't calm nobody wanted to follow that person um right we also worked for people that were confident but that weren't competent so i brought it all down to being calm confident not arrogant confident you gotta be humble a little bit and also competent in your task just those three things. And I think that if you try to embody those three things, you'll succeed in any fire department or any business for that matter. Absolutely. So how many years did you end up doing in New Haven? I did 22 years in New Haven. And because they wouldn't promote me because and other firefighters, because we were white and Hispanic when the United States Supreme Court, uh, when we won our court case on merit-based promotions and the necessity of that We were actually given pension credit. So I retired at 22 years, but with a full 30-year pension from the city. So I actually did a little bit extra, gave some time back to the city because I was union president, and I wanted to finish the contract. I knew that the members, the men and women in New Haven Fire Department deserve the best contract after they give so much to the community that I wanted to make sure to see that contract through. I got that contract, and using the tactics in that book, the same tactics I used on the fire ground, that ended up being the best collective bargaining agreement for the fire department in Connecticut, hands down. Yep. And Dave, even the people that don't like me will tell you that that my contract right. was pretty awesome.
0: Yep. So interesting. Uh obviously I was in a lawsuit myself, as you're well aware. Um, it's interesting when you see your name up there on that so-and-so versus so and so with that federal emblem on it it's uh it's quite scary in a way but it's uh it's also if you know you're doing the right thing and you're pushing for the right thing it's sort of a it's a scary proud moment um and it and it it takes a while to get there it's like you said like you you made that mistake early on by filing that complaint and it wasn't that you're wrong in filing that complaint cuz i'm sure whatever it is the department or whoever was doing wrong and you wanted to make it right and so for guys like us who are very passionate it's hard sometimes for us to have a strategy without going straight for the well if we're right we're right and who can who could be against right but that's not the way the world works and so if you don't have a strategy you can really screw yourself up and that's what this book brings all of these stories from from all over together and like you said you're you're talking about mistakes that you survived but learned a lesson from that you could build on the next time and i think this especially this generation uh you know 30 and under in the fire service they lack a lot of experience in dealing with a lot of different things that something like this book can fill the gap somewhat nothing beats experience nothing beats experience but when you can have these stories in these actual things that happened you get credibility and you're able to learn from somebody else's uh journey whether it was a pleasant journey or an unpleasant journey <laughs> and Dave, we had you're,
1: both you're 100 percent right but to paraphrase ben franklin Experience is the best teacher, but only a fool learns in that school alone. So that, that that experience has to be balanced. And that's one of the reasons that I reached out to some great fire engineering instructors and authors and brought them in because I wanted to put and highlight command presence in action from different perspectives from around the entire country. Some names that individuals will recognize one hundred percent. As soon as they see the name, they'll know who Dave Rhodes is, who Mike Galliano is. But other names that are up and coming that are reaching that pinnacle now, like Dave McGlenn and Corey Moore. So I tried to kind of not only look at the country, but also look at individuals that were there and also individuals that are working their way there that, you know, they're calm, they're confident and they're competent and they're great instructors and they're delivering a very important message that needs to be heard. So I thought that that would help balance the book as well and also break up, you know, you're reading one perspective now all of a sudden you're getting a totally fresh perspective. And I really appreciate, you know, the chief of Houston, Samuel, and I'll mispronounce his name and I apologize. It's Pena, correct? Mm -hmm, I think so. Um, You know, we put him in the the last, the first chapter. He's the last segment in the first chapter. And I, I really appreciate him stepping up and lending his voice uh to this work
0: so one of the one of the big leadership lessons is that you got to establish trust with your folks in order to be a leader and and you've already talked about being competent and that's one of the things i always talk about is you gotta you gotta have competence and you gotta have character and so without those two um it's hard, it's, it's hard to be a leader and have any kind of influence. So what is, it, what is it about some of these experiences that allowed you to be vulnerable enough to expose yourself in some of these situations that you felt it was important enough to get that message out there?
1: Well, I'm going to hit this from two parts. One, we all learn from our own mistakes, but only the wise learn from others. And Anthony and Villo and I, I think I quoted him in my FDIC speech, my keynote, and he came up to me after and he goes, uh, Frank, you said that when we wrote the book, I didn't say it. So, but, but I've gotten so much for Anthony and he also wrote for the book, brilliant author, brilliant command officer. But I think that we learn the most from our mistakes and I just always been that person where I tend to put myself out front. And if you're going to put yourself out front, you're you're going to catch some people are going to throw rocks at you, no matter how right Right. or wrong you are. If you put yourself out front, there will be a time where you feel alone and kind of like, well, wait a second, I'm doing what's right. How could this all be happening to me? But you just got to push. You got to stay the course and you got to push through it. Um, One of the things that really opened my eyes to this was is I was already an FDI. Uh, instructor I get promoted was already teaching search in the academy was an adjunct instructor and on one of my my very first my first shift first night shift on the island of misfit toys we got a job uh room and contents fire going good out the windows with uh gasoline siding underneath the other siding that was enveloping you know just was like a textbook fire where everything went where at the time I thought everything went right and Force entry, took a look below the smoke, got the layout of the room, told the pipe person to hit it. We hit it. We start crawling in and uh, command radio that the fire was enveloping the front of the building. So I took my pipe person. I was the engine boss at the time, kind of moving them along with me. And there was a big wo- uh, bookcase in front of the window. Still couldn't see my hand in front of my face. So I thought I was doing it right. I took my hand and I swept the bed. And there was nothing on the bed. And I told Chris, who's he could fight Bigfoot and give him a run for his money. Chris, a big kid. He said, take the bookcase and just put it on the bed. So in like one motion, he put down the pipe and got the bookcase on the bed. After the fire was out, all searches confirmed negative. We're at the command post and the battalion chief says, did anybody find a dog? And I my heart just sunk because I said, these guys are good. They're not going to miss a dog there was only essentially one room of substantial fire. There, nobody's mm-hmm. going to miss a dog. The dog's got to be in that room. It's, it's on me. I miss the dog. So lo and behold, which I teach now at FDIC, is if you have to move anything during a search, always move it to the known, stable position. So we should have moved the bookcase behind us along the wall. We could have collapsed it. It was an area search. We wouldn't have covered up a door or anything. And what happened was that bookcase slid off the bed into a crevasse probably six to 12 inches between the bed and the window and covered the dog that was three quarters below. And so now I'm like, this is my first night. I literally just caught a job two hours into the into the shift. I got one of the most senior shifts in the city that's just known from crushing banter. And, and I actually thought about this, Dave. I go, Ah, there's going to be a stuffed dog on the seat of the fire truck at my seat at dinner. You know, so I was like, well, look, I can make excuses or I can just hit it head on. So in the tailboard critique, I said, hey, guys. I effed up. I missed the dog. It's on me. What I could have done different was I could have moved it to a stable position that we already searched behind us. And instead of getting the banter that I was expecting all of a sudden everybody else started opening up in the critique and I was like, wow. And when I went to work, I really didn't get, I actually built credibility with the shift. I didn't take away credibility and I was like, okay. And so I wrote an article for fire engineering about that incident and talk about it all the time. It don't matter how good you are. We can all make a mistake, but it's all about the victims. If, If you miss a dog, if your department misses a dog, your department will miss a kid or a baby. So that, that needs to be taken very seriously. And that was a hundred percent on me. So we just trained to be better. And then I learned from that is every critique. I always started off with what I would do different in hindsight or what I would do different, pulling up to the same job. And that always got the crew to start, um, interacting and building the shift. So I had a positive experience, you know, people are going to hate you. They're going to hate you. It is what it is. Um, don't worry about them. You, you know, uh, what is it? Donald Rumsfeld said, uh, dogs don't bark at parked cars. So right. you're going to be moving. You're going to make mistakes. But at least stay the course in the right direction. As for right. the trust thing, I want to hit this real quick. Is It's something I teach in my leadership classes. I call it the Facebook factor of trust. So when you said it so eloquently that, you know, trust is really kind of that currency of being a good leader. But we all like to gossip. It's part of our our DNA, especially as firefighters. So that's what's so great about FDIC and elsewhere. If you have to tell somebody a story, tell somebody that you hooked up with at FDIC. You know, I could call Dave McGlenn and say, hey, Dave, look, this is what happened at work. Because if I'm talking to Dave McGlenn and he's in Pennsylvania, the names don't matter anymore. Right. If you're telling that story at work, if you're a boss and you become part of the rumor mill, well, now all of a sudden you're eroding your credibility. And what I found is this is how the Facebook factor of trust works. Me and you are good friends. So I say, you know, Dave, you know, I need you to keep this right between me and you and you have a little bit of respect for me. So you say, Frank, I'm not going to tell anybody. Well, you tell your two closest friends. You're not going to tell everybody. You're not going to put it on Facebook. You're just going right. to tell your two closest friends. And then what happens is it's like a pyramid. They yeah. tell their two closest friends. And now all of a sudden they, they're kind of removed from you. They don't even know you. So now they tell six people before you know it's right. on Facebook. So I think conferences like FDIC, not only going to the classrooms, but also talking to your peers, talking to your mentors, to talking to the, just the firefighters, you kind of can talk about rumor mill and without naming the names.
0: Right. You need that outside circle of advisors or shoulders to cry on, whatever you want to call it, because again, they, you, you don't, they don't need to know the names. They just need to know the circumstances and they can give you advice back. Well, you took the bait perfectly. Cause what I was getting at is one of the, most effective ways to build trust is to show your vulnerability and by saying, Hey, I screwed up and here's why. Then your crew showed their vulnerability too, and told you all the ways they screwed up at the same fire. Now, if I had been on your crew, you would have got that same thing from me, but there would have been a stuffed dog, uh, in the bed at some point, I can guarantee you that for sure. So tell me a little bit, um, in your introduction, the greatest evil is indifference. So let's, let's talk about that a little
1: bit. That was on my refrigerator as a kid. So on my refrigerator, there was a sign as a little kid that said the greatest evil is indifference. And essentially what my parents taught us, my mother and father, is that if words were important enough to be spoken, then action was needed. So We weren't allowed to complain about things. They expected that if you're going to complain about something, you kind of had to have a plan on what you were going to do to change it and make it better. So that is something that always stood with me. And, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, character is what you do when nobody's looking and that Mm -hmm. kind of morphed into what a leader is. And I find that to be a disservice to anybody who's going to be a leader. I find that leadership is what you do when everybody's looking, because that's when it's hard and that's when the mistakes are made. So I wanted to make sure you know that you're always being watched as a boss. You know, the old saying of what you let go becomes the new minimum standard. But whether you're a boss or that senior firefighter, you know, how you carry yourself matters. You know, my, my cousin's starting a new job uh, this week and he goes, oh, hey, any advice? I said, yes. In the industry that you're in, when you get promoted to a manager one day, six years from now, you're going to be managing the very same people you work with. So don't get stuck in the rut. Don't complain about people and be the employee that you would want to manage. Because if not, it's going to get thrown right in your face as soon as you become a boss. And no matter how competent you are, you're not going to be an effective leader.
0: Yep. And you said earlier, when you got promoted, you got put over the shift that you actually worked on like we didn't even do that in atlanta so that was an, that's an interesting i mean i guess it happened every now and then depending on who you were and who you knew at the time if you wanted to stay there but even if you did want to which most people probably do because they don't quite get it especially like your first promotion but uh man that's a setup it, it is actually better for you to 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 move on. Well, the, somewhere the
1: hilarious else. thing is so then when they did shuffle the deck and they sent me to Fairhaven, there's 40 shifts in the city, 10 firehouses. So 40 shifts I could have went to. They sent me to the shift with the president of the Firebirds who called me the white devil. So I'm supervising somebody who has attacked my integrity and I have to lead him the same way I lead everybody else. We ended up becoming friends. And also my first cousin was on the shift. So it was like this really crazy dynamic, but I learned a lot and I had, a, as everybody says, and I'll, I'll ask you, cause you were a battalion chief. I look back on my career. The most fun I had was a firefighter and being a Lieutenant on the job. Yeah. The responsibility just gets too high as you go on.
0: Yeah, Till- Tillerman driving the truck was probably the best. I did have some good, I had some good times as a captain and, uh, and as a battalion chief, but as far as pure fun, Absolutely. There's nothing like being a truck driver, Um, especially on the back, because you're just jumping off, grabbing your hook and going straight, you know, straight in to do your thing. It's awesome. A couple of little little pieces in here that are uh, great, great titles, great chapter headings, by the way. Let's talk a little bit about getting and giving a cigar.
1: So so this is great. We could kind of tie it back to that first story. New Haven has this great thing in when you get yelled at or you do something wrong, they call it. And this goes back, I think to the thirties, they call it getting a cigar and it's kind of a way it kind of takes a sting out of saying you messed up. So instead of saying, Hey, I messed this up. You just say, Oh yeah, I got a cigar. And when I became drill master for the department, I used to call my office, the humidor because I was always causing mayhem. But, uh, yeah, it's just simply a way to to say that you messed up is hey, I got a cigar or I'm giving somebody a cigar and it's just one of those New Haven lore. We don't know where it actually came from, but it's just it's been in New Haven Part of the culture. I hope it's a I yeah. hope it's a tradition that that carries on.
0: Yeah. That's a good one. One of the uh, one of the things we used to have was uh, and obviously times changed rapidly with a lot of the hr policies and all but the old way of solving problems uh in our department was uh you you went to the hose tower and you and you had a fight and you know you actually literally duked it out and then after that everything was good you know i mean you got your you got your point across there was either a winner or a loser or a draw and uh um I'm sure it's still said today, but obviously during during my career there wasn't an a, an official or unofficial allowance of fights, but people would be mouthing at each other and all, and that phrase was still there. it be like, Hey, 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 take it to the host tower. And and some people would walk outside and talk a little bit to kind of get out of your hair or whatever. But uh um in the old days, you know, they just fought it out. And then uh things were Worked out quite well under that system. Ironically, um I read an article in a, in a or read a chapter in a book with some of the special forces, and they were talking about they had the beef circle. And at the end of the day, they circled around and they said, "All right, anybody have a problem with anybody's performance today or anything they did?" And like somebody would speak up, and they would say, "All right, come on, get in the middle of the circle," and, and they they you know no headshots and whatever. You could wrestle, you could box, you could do whatever. And it solved so many problems and, and it built such good cohesion that after about the first week, they said nobody had a problem with each other, but people were just calling each other out just to see who was the baddest in the wrestling match.
1: Unfortunately and fortunately, we are a kindler fire service and business environment out there. And, you know, one of the rules I had as a, as a lieutenant, because I always used to really focus on my senior personnel. To let them handle the small stuff is you know if it affects civilian safety firefighter safety or the reputation of the fire department then i need to know about it and those are those are three kind of really quick things that if you're going to empower your senior personnel to run your shift say in the firehouse that's a good thing hey if it's going to affect the reputation of the fire department if it's going to affect civilian safety or firefighter safety i need to know about it Um, that's a good rule and it helps build your personnel.
0: Yeah. Other than that, let the senior man take you off to the side and have a good talk with you. Mm -hmm. Um, another one that I like, and I'm sure there's a lot of material here, negotiations, getting what you want. That's what everybody wants, right?
1: Everything you want in life is either owned or controlled by somebody else. And yet we are horrible as firefighters and as people, just negotiating. I mean, just like the very simple tactic, and um, I, I encourage, regardless of what your politics is, it's from Canada, so I think it's great. There's an individual; he's running for prime minister. He's eating an apple, and they ask him a, they ask him a question, and it's a, it's a master class in negotiation. So, when somebody brings to you a position, they make a statement or ask you a question. Don't answer it. Stop. Be calm. Ask them a question. By just asking them a question, what you'll generally do is put them on their back foot. You'll de-escalate a little bit, but you'll also narrow their position to find weakness. Now, this guy in the video, I'll have Mark put a link up to it because it's worth seeing. He just asks question after question after question. But it's a key way to disarm people in negotiations. I found that the key to good negotiations, Dave, and you probably know as as a union president, and I included you in this chapter because what you came up with, I thought was brilliant with that no confidence vote on a piece Mm -hmm. of equipment instead of an Mm -hmm. individual. I thought that was brilliant. I remembered that story you told me in Tulsa, probably like six years or so when I called and said, I need this story in the book. But negotiations really comes down to planning, having a strategy and laying out how are you gonna get from A to B. You need to stop playing checkers and start playing chess. Sometimes at a fire, For size up, you need to make almost the perfect decision based off imperfect information. You don't want to keep changing because you will look like a squirrel. And next thing you know, you get run over. However, anything administratively, whether it's in the firehouse or in negotiations, it's not on fire. Slow it down. Take a good look. You're playing chess. And a chess master said, when you see a good move, look for a better one. You can't Mm -hmm. do that on the fire ground. But you can definitely do that administratively. And that's one of the problems we have in our service: is that administratively, we think we need to handle things the same way and with the same speed and efficiency at a fire. No, you need to slow it down. You need to read the controlling documents that are affecting whatever issue you're doing, dot the I's, cross the T's, do it right and do it right first and don't establish bad facts. And you know, you mentioned the Supreme Court case. That was one of the gifts of that Supreme Court case is that when we started, we never knew that our houses would be on the line, all 20 of us, and that we'd be looking at a Supreme Court case. We just knew that the issue was sensitive and that people cared about the issue, even that had good faith opinions on the other side of it. And we knew that we couldn't afford to establish any bad facts. So we took our time and we planned out every move. And that's really what negotiations is. Slow it down. Make sure you can see the whole entire board because what you're going to find is if you're looking at things kind of like a game, you can master that game.
0: Right. Do you find uh, I I think some people jump into a negotiation or, or even on the lower end, just a just a conversation about an issue or whatever that you got a disagreement with somebody on. It's kind of natural to just. Sort of paint them as the bad, the bad guy, or, or the bad person, or whatever. But if you go in to a conversation or a negotiation and you communicate to them as if they are the bad guy, you've already lost. And so you got to do your homework, and you got to put yourself in their position because nine times out of ten, maybe it was a bad decision, but that doesn't mean that they're bad person and maybe they're bound by some practice or they just made a mistake or they did something that was just wrong and you're and you're calling them out on it so you got to figure out why they made that decision first and that was one of my things i always said especially with the politicians is like you can go in there and hammer them all day long and all they're going to do is dig in further but if you go in there with the issue and you lay out your you lay out your facts and your position and you and you're you're credible to them uh you're respectful to them and you always leave them a way out that was like the key you give them an escape hatch and sometimes hopefully they'll come up with their own you know and they know how to do it but if you provide the escape hatch for them then that is almost like showing a little vulnerability too. And you start to build a little bit of trust and he's like, okay, he's not trying to crucify me here. He's just making a point and you want him to see your side of the facts too. But you have to think about the fact that there's some reason they made that decision and it may not have been out of spite or out of negligence. It could just simply be, they didn't have all the information at the time and they made a bad decision because we do it all the time. You wrote, However, many 13 chapters about mistakes, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> very very well, very well said. And I'll give you two examples. So the individual, Victor Bolden, who was on the opposite side of our United States Supreme Court case, was the legal director for the NAACP legal defense fund. He was brought in um, to be the face of New Haven, to be corporation counsel to argue against us. And Victor and I got along famously because I knew he had a job to do, but he was a consummate professional and he mm. never let it get personal. And we never got personal. We always communicated with each other, even if we were going at each other on Lou Dobbs or Sean Hannity. You know, we would do the 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 split right. screens arguing. We always kept it personal and people were amazed because you know victor's a democrat and i'm a staunch conservative but when we won and the supreme court issued the the ruling victor bolding got nominated by president obama to be a superior court judge and Mm -hmm. i provided testimony before the senate to get him confirmed and people were like blown away like how how could you and i was like because he followed the law he had a job to do You have to, whenever you're thinking with your heart, you're not thinking with your head. It's just like being a chief. If you're working with your hands, you're not working with your head. So you can work with your hands in training, but if you're in the chief and your job is to be looking at what's going on, you gotta make sure you know that your radio is your tool, but you shouldn't have a tool in your hand forcing a door or pulling a ceiling. You're diminishing your own command. However, there are times, and I like to say, where you gotta hit somebody with a bat and that doesn't mean literally hit them with a bat. That means use just brutal, honest truth, but also give the person a way out. So to give you an example, I had an issue with our mayor on a staffing issue. I knew exactly what you said. If I attacked the mayor, she was gonna dig in and that we weren't gonna get anywhere and we were gonna lose a company. So what we did was we came up with a plan, we came up with a press plan. And in the end, we always use what I say, ESP, Always start off with the emotional argument, try to get some kind of agreement with the person you're talking to, then move to standards and statistics. And then the P is professionalism and persistence. And what we would find is that if somebody's the decision maker, there is always somebody else that's behind that person. That's usually number two or number three. That's giving them bad information. So Mm -hmm. we would attack number two, not attack physically, attack to just make it perfectly clear that this individual is giving the mayor the wrong information. I mean, in one ad, we took an ad, half page ad in the the paper, and we photoshopped in the emergency director talking on the radio saying, don't worry, I live in Orange, which is another town. So he probably had a voodoo doll of me after that. (laughs) But in the end, he understood that hey, this wasn't personal, this was business. So sometimes you got to hit it head on, but you're 100% right. And there's brilliance in what you said, Dave. You got to leave the decision maker an out. And you don't ever paint somebody a bad guy that's not a bad guy. But one thing I've learned about city hall dwellers and city hall creatures, there's more than enough bad guys that are agreeing with these bad decisions that are putting Mm -hmm. policy pressure. Find the one that's worse and expose them. Expose the truth, hit them with the bat.
0: Yep. and then if you got if you got to go further hopefully you can you you can negotiate and get your point across and have resolution without going to court but that's the great thing about the country is you always have that option it's going to be expensive and it's going to be time consuming it, you know it takes years to get through that process but it's worth it in the end uh, so that you can get get all of the truth out there so were there any surprises uh i know you had a lot of you had a lot of uh, contributors to the book. Was there was there anything that 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 surprised you that somebody actually told the story, or uh, or it was just such a good example of of what you were doing that you didn't know before you started the book?
1: Um, I'll give you one, and it's it's from the think tank world because I work for a think tank, um, which is just mind blowing because I couldn't even spell think tank when I was in high school. So. I was my boss was going on a radio show. I think it was a national radio show. And my boss, Harvard graduate, brilliant, um, was the editor of the Harvard Law Review. And But she's a visionary. Some people are visionaries and some people are in the weeds. She's a visionary. And everything was moving quick and I didn't want her to miss the time. So I was getting on the phone and I, I put this in the book. I put the quote in the book, not the story. And I was getting on the phone to call her a reminder and Bryce Chenault goes, Frank, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to call Carol and just remind her about a radio interview today because I don't want her to miss it. He goes, stop. He goes, because you can't micromanage the boss. And I go, I go, I'm just trying to make sure every train's run on time here. He goes, here, try this. Send her a text that says, hey, Carol, I'm looking forward to seeing you on the radio at four o'clock today. And I was like, that's brilliant how many bosses in the fire service micromanage people to check up on them and then as soon as they leave the office the guy's saying uh oh, what a jerk he knows i'm getting this done when he or she could just simply say hey i'm looking forward to your presentation on friday you know how you make it out now all of a sudden it changes that whole entire dynamic and that was like the last thing the last quote i added into the book was from bryce oh. I said, i said that's brilliant because just just that soft touch of dealing with employees and empowering them instead of like you're checking up on them. That can make a big, big difference. And and that's what this book's about. It's about tactics and strategies. You can take away the tactics and say, hey, I can apply this to whatever I do to just be a little bit better. One of the other things that I talked about in the book that really bothered me is I'll ask in a leadership class, I'll say, you know, as a leader, do you ever ask a question without knowing the answer? And so many people say yes. And I'm like, do you realize that that comes from the legal world? And lawyers, when they say that, they only say that because they already asked the question in depositions. So they're not asking a question they didn't ask in depositions, but the business world took that as in to be competent. You need to be all knowing and not ask questions. (laughs) You're a fool. You got to ask questions. That's how you're getting information. So in negotiations, okay, this is, Groundbreaking for people in the fire service. They think command presence is giving those short, concise directions on a fire ground. True. In negotiations, administrative, anything else, it's the one who's talking the least has the command presence and the one that's asking the questions to get the right information, to make the right decisions, slow it down. So yes, I ask questions all the time that I don't know the answer to. Don't conflate. What a lawyer says, just because it's a nice soundbite, and actually create a weakness for yourself. You want to be asking questions all the time as a boss, or you're going to be getting the wrong information.
0: Yep. And good dialogue and negotiation dialogue, um, dialogue, good dialogue and negotiations is, is almost like research. You know, where they say, as soon as you finish a research project, what do you need? More research because you've come up with more questions. So if you ask a question, you are going to get an answer which is going to spur at least two more questions and that's how you get a dialogue going so that you can work through an issue um, for any of you who haven't noticed uh, you can apply these to your relationships also these are great great tips anybody that's been been married for a long time already knew pretty much everything that was in the book frank uh, if, if their marriage was was successful and had stayed together. <laughs> well, the, you have learned the, all these negotiations the
1: the fire acts. service. Most marriages aren't and Mike and Ann that's are right. doing everything they can to strengthen them.
0: Yeah, I've been lucky in that category too. So that's been a good one. All right. So what do you, uh, obviously this, this was a project that took quite a while. Was it, was this your first book?
1: Uh, this was my first book. I, I had the honor to write for Billy Goldfeder to right. write for the Seattle guys. Um, pretty much every book that came out, you know, either somebody would ask me to get right. pictures or, or write a page. So, you know, so this was my first book actually putting through and, you know, the guy behind the curtain here on the wizard of Oz is Mark Ha. You know, Mark Ha was one of those individuals who said, you know, you really got to tell a story. And yeah. of course, Bobby Hallen was the one who really kept on me saying, Frank, when are you going to write this? When are you going to write this? So um, thanks to Bobby and, you know, just as as a note, these are Bobby's last published words in the book. He yeah. didn't actually get to right. see the book come out, but it was his last published words. And the book was something that he believed in and was really pushing and think that other people could learn just a little bit to get a little bit better.
0: So what's the uh, what is the biggest takeaway you want people to get from reading this book?
1: I want them to be able to what makes me the happiest is when somebody sends me the book in the mail and says, sign the book, send it back to me. And I use this tactic and it worked. You know, I'm not trying to recreate the worst thing I've seen in the fire service and in the business world is somebody reads a book. And then the next week they come to work and they're that person. That's not what this book is about. This book is this book is to they got notes on their hand. Oh, it's horrible. Th- this I'm book supposed is to say you're gonna be able to apply these tactics and be able to use some of these tactics to make yourself a little bit better. And when that happens, that's like that's the highest praise and it was such an honor of having all these people write for the book and Bobby Hall and called it out for what it was. He goes, Frank, what is this, a Tom Sawyer project? You're gonna you're not even gonna have to write anything. You got all these people <laughs> on you. But uh, but no, seriously, I just want everybody if you're a boss, this book is not going to bore you with the characteristics of saying you got to be honest. You got to be trustworthy. You got to be this. This is hey, here's a story. Here are some tactical takeaways that you can apply to essentially any situation that's within the four corners of this. And you'll make yourself a little bit more effective. Like I say, it's just going to be a matter of time before you find yourself as a leader standing in front of a room of people that don't agree with you. Standing with a camera in your face from the press or standing in the jury box or at a deposition. And I wanted to kind of give those tactics to kind of talk about those things that aren't often uh, talked about in books. You know, we cover command, we cover size up, but we also cover, hey, what should you be doing when you get your first deposition? Because you don't have to be a union president or a company officer to find yourself at a deposition. It helps to kind of have a little bit of framework of, hey, this is how it works. So-
0: Absolutely. Well, man, I think, uh, I think we've covered it pretty good. And I just want to encourage everybody. Um, it's a beautiful book. They did a great job with it. Pretty decent looking guy on the front of it. Um, it's command presence, increase your influence. Um, it's going to help you out. It, it's a different type of leadership book. Again, as Frank said, it's, it's not step one, step two, it's actual real things that happened, and lessons learned that you can, uh, that you can certainly put in your, in your bank of knowledge and and refer back to, and, and it's probably going to make you realize that you've had very similar situations and maybe you just didn't, you, maybe you just didn't learn the lesson from it or you didn't realize what a learning opportunity it was. And, uh, anytime you can get some words of wisdom from folks who have been there and got the scars, um, it's, it's an absolute gem. So uh, pick up, you can get a copy at uh, Fire Engineering Books. And uh, actually, you can get it anywhere. But um, Fire Engineering Books is the easiest way to jump on the website and order it. It's Frank Ritchie. It's been out for, I guess it came out at FDIC, right? In came April. Out
1: at FDIC. And Dave, it's been an honor being on the show. And thank you so much for contributing to this book because your contribution made this book just a little bit better.
0: I appreciate it. So thanks everybody for listening. I'm David Rose with Frank Ritchie and we'll see you next time. This one's in the books.